This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Thanks, worship team. What a blessed time together. Well, good morning to all of you. I would just ask you if you remain standing, if you could, and if you're able to open your Bible, if you have a copy of God's Word, turn to the book of First Peter. Good morning to you all. Good morning. First uh, Peter chapter 2. We've been making our way through this book. If you're dropping in on us today, studying through First Peter, Peter writes in the first century to the uh, young Christian churches that were being deeply oppressed and troubled just before the uh, official uh, persecution from the empire began. I like to pick it up a little earlier just because I'll be referring to some of this. So go all the way up to verse 11. Uh, verse 11, my focus is verse 18 this morning, but let's hear the word of the Lord. This is First Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. <laughs> this is the word of God. Let's pray one last time. Lord, we... We come to you again by faith and thank you for your word and your spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you would minister to each of our hearts, those of us gathered here, and those who watch from or listen from afar. For Christ's sake, amen. Thank you. 
Well, Peter is answering the question, how shall we who follow Jesus live in this fallen world? And to answer that question, he must speak to authority because everyone lives under some authority, including them in their own context. We all answer to someone on some level, and most of us answer to more than one someone (laughs) uh, all the time. And so Peter introduced that overarching principle, you may remember in verse 13, where he says there, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now that is, subject yourself voluntarily. Remember, it means align yourself under the authorities that God has placed over you. He then applies this to the authority of government. He applies it to authority in the workplace, so to speak, from our perspective. And lastly, to family in in chapter 3. But you remember, before he launches into these specific applications, he makes clear that you need to remember who you are as a Christian, what God has made you to be, once again, what you are in Christ, your, your identity in Christ. And doctrine is the basis of practice. And we can't escape that. As much as some people don't like to think about doctrine, you simply can't live without it. Right thinking is what leads to right living. Right thinking about God, about what he's done for you, about who Christ is and what he has made you to be, uh, what's happened to you if you have become a Christian and so forth. And so sound theology is the basis for, for right living. And that becomes especially important when we have to live in difficult, painful circumstances. And so if you want to know how to live for Jesus in this world, you have to Realize several things about yourself, about what God has done. The positive, what he said up earlier, he said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You've been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light and so forth. But also, you need to understand that now you're sojourners. <laughs> you're aliens here. You're visitors, guests in this present age now. Uh, passing through and this means that you have to struggle you have to struggle against the sinful inclinations that still dwell inside of you that was in verse 11 and he says you also are going to need to live uh, godly distinctive lives uh, verse 12 so that that people may see that and, and some may glorify God as a result of the transformation they see in your life and how you're living even in times of difficulty. Uh, and you also have to remember that this will mean something. This will mean that you will experience opposition, that there will be tremendous opposition, that there will be attacks upon you. Like he says, you'll be those who call you evildoers because of the good that you're doing. And you will even, some of you, at some point, suffer unjustly. Suffer for doing good. And that we should, we should, of course, expect this. We've said this. And I imagine Peter, when he wrote this, was reflecting back on the teachings of Jesus, whom, who said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, know that they will also, also 
persecute you. And so the central principle of this whole section that we've begun now is in verse 19. We looked at it last week. Verse 19 and 21. That is that God calls believers to endure unjust suffering when doing good. We're called to this, he says. God calls believers to endure unjust suffering when doing good. And last week, we just focused on the principle. We, we asked ourselves, how is it that we suffer well? And then why should we? What motivation does he give us in these passages to suffer well, even while, while doing good in this life? And we skipped over the specific application Peter was making of this in the workplace in verse 18. Uh, because we just wanted to understand the principle. So this morning, I just want to go back to verse 18 in this broader context and, and seek to understand what Peter is saying to us in our context today. Right? What he says, verse 18, he says, Servants, be subject or subject yourselves voluntarily to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And if we're going to understand what Peter is getting at for ourselves, we must understand what he was talking about in his context. He was not writing to us primarily in the 21st context. So let's first appreciate, appreciate what he's getting at and what he's actually asking these people to do. And we must touch on the unpleasant subject of slavery and slavery in the first century, the time of the New Testament. The word Peter uses there, Servants uh, is really a word that refers to household slaves, slaves that served in the household setting. In other words, their workplace, and I'm calling it a workplace, <laughs> their workplace uh, was their master's home, their owner's home. They were slaves, not employees. <laughs> and yet, in the best cases, they could often be considered members of the family. It could become that good in some cases. Think of, uh, think of Joseph in Potiphar's house. Although in the end, it didn't work out too well for Joseph. Right? Uh, and, but this is different than some slavery in, in Britain and colonial America in, in several ways. Uh, slavery in Britain and colonial America was based largely on race uh, slaves, you know, were kidnapped, and then they were bought and sold as personal property. And there was some of that in the first century, but there was also differences to, in the slavery in the first century. Uh, slaves uh, were captured in wars, and they were the result of the conquest, and so they would come and serve those who conquered them, and then others would be born into slavery and many uh, in the first century, we've touched on this before, sold themselves into slavery. Uh, you say, well, who would sell themselves into, into slavery? Well, there were no uh, bankruptcy laws in the first century. <laughs> and so if, you, if things went bad for you financially, if you got into some tremendous debt or your business failed or something of that sort, you, the only way to pay your way out was to sell yourself into slavery and slowly pay your way out of, out of this debt. And so slavery was a massive amount or portion of the economy of the Roman Empire. 
Uh, it's estimated there were millions of slaves, and there's too many views of how many. So, but you, you just understand, it was just huge. It was, it was massive. Now, many slaves uh, lived miserable lives, especially those who served in the mines. Those would be most of those who were conquered through uh, wars and those who served in farms in rural areas. But some slaves, in fact, many slaves in the urban centers, say Rome and some of the other larger urban centers, were actually very educated. The Romans had this idea that uh, as Roman citizens, we should just kick back and enjoy life, and our slaves should do all the work. So, so the slaves, in many cases, were better educated. They served as tutors. They served as doctors. They served as uh, musicians. They served as managers of great estates, artisans, and some slaves even had their own slaves. Now, I'm not trying to give the impression at all that first century slavery was more humane. <laughs> this has always been an awful evil. And you could be brutally treated as a slave, and that would be absolutely fine, and even killed. It was all within the law in the first century. But I'm making the point that there were some differences from our own historic memories of slavery here. And in many cases, you could purchase your way, buy your way out of slavery through a process known as manumission. Now, the question is asked sometimes. If we as Christians think that slavery is such an evil, why doesn't the New Testament, especially we're talking New Testament, the gospel of Christ, encourage the overthrow of slavery? Why don't they talk about bringing slavery to an end? And rather than formulating my own opinion from various sources, I'll read from Thomas Schreiner, who called from many historical sources. So here's his quote. Just be patient a little bit. He says, this, this idea was unrealistic for the fledgling New Testament church in the Roman Empire. The young churches would be fighting the consensus of the Greco-Roman world, and hence any such attempt would be doomed to futility. New Testament documents address readers in the situation in which they live. Railing against slavery would not be of any help to ordinary Christians. For, as noted, the dissolution of slavery was out of the question. Furthermore, New Testament writers were not social revolutionaries. And I think this is important for us to understand, especially. They did not believe that overhauling social structures would transform culture. Their concern was the relationship of individuals to God. And they focused on the, on, on the sin and rebellion of individuals against their creator. And so New Testament writers, therefore, concentrated instead on the godly response of believers to mistreatment. That was their focus. And that's what we're seeing here in the writings of Peter, and I'll quote in a, in a, in a few minutes, the writings of Paul in the same way. Now, having said that, that there's just no way that they would uh, even begin to, to think that they're going to overthrow this and, and change it, and that was not their, their focus at all. Having said this, and even though slavery uh, had existed for centuries, more than a millennia, as a, a part of every major empire, Babylonian, the Persian, Egyptian, Greek, and Roman Empire, even though slavery was that deeply embedded and part of life, the New Testament nowhere condones slavery. It nowhere commends slavery as a good social structure. 
that we should all be grateful for. Not at all. And so what Peter and Paul and others wrote is never to be seen, I think, as an endorsement of slavery. On the contrary, on the contrary, the seeds of the end of slavery, the, sle- the seeds of the emancipation of people who were enslaved, those seeds are in the Bible everywhere, but especially in the New Testament. It is the Bible that teaches us that all human beings are created equal in the image of God. That all human life, therefore, has value and is to be honored because we are all image bearers. It's in the scriptures that we learn that human beings, therefore, as image bearers, are people, not property. And we're told that in the gospel, in Christ, there is no male or female or what? Slave or free. That is to say, spiritually speaking, our standing before God is equal, whether in their case you were a slave or you were a master. Uh, in fact, Paul condemns slaveholders, slave owners uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He places them in the same list alongside murderers and the sexually immoral. In 1 Timothy 1.10, slaveholders are part of that darkness, that wickedness, that immorality. And Paul, uh, speaking to the Corinthian Christians, knowing that many of them were slaves, he says this to them in 1 Corinthians 7. I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 20, 21. He says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called, meaning when you became a Christian, when God called you. It doesn't mean you need to change everything about your, about your life. Uh, he says, were you a slave? When called, do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, (laughs) avail yourself of the opportunity, you see. If you can get out, get out, says Paul. You don't need to stay a slave. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. And likewise, he who was free when he was called is a slave of Christ. So he says, what your, your spiritual condition is what matters, he says. That's what matters. But if you are a slave, if you can get out. If you have the opportunity, get out. Get out from under that. And then there's the case of a runaway slave named Onesimus, who belonged to a man named Philemon or Philemon. He was a runaway, but he had become a Christian under Paul. And Paul loved him almost like like a son. And Paul writes to uh, Philemon about returning this man, uh, sending him back to him. And he speaks in this way. He says, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. And for, this ha- for this, perhaps, is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more 
been a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. <laughs> Enough with treating him as a slave, <laughs> is what he's saying. Philemon, you treat him like you treat me, a brother in Christ. So. And so the, though the New Testament never uh, directly uh, launches or encourages the launching of some sort of subversive or frontal attack against, uh, against slavery or bringing it to the end, the seeds of the end of slavery are in the gospel and in the New Testament. You know, Christianity uh, was never designed to be a political movement. That's not what the kingdom of God is like. But over time, over time, the, the Christian worldview has powerfully affected political policy in many, many places, you know, even here in our own nation. Alexander McLaren uh, wrote that the gospel, and I quote, he says, the gospel meddles directly with no political or social arrangement, but lays down principles, lays down principles which will profoundly affect these and leads them to soak into the general mind. Let, let these principles soak into the culture. And when they do, they will have a profound effect upon these sorts of policies. And history has borne this out, beloved, in, nature, in nations where Christianity spread and where it took hold, where, where Christianity took hold, slavery in many cases was brought to end brought to an end largely, not exclusively, but largely through the efforts of genuine Christians, born-again individuals, uh, prominent among them people like William Wilberforce in Great Britain and Charles Spurgeon, whose books were burned in the U.S. when he spoke against slavery, and uh, John Wesley and Charles Finney, to mention just a, a few other names. So that's, a, that's enough reflecting on that. <clears throat> what I want you to see is this, that Peter writes to people in this very, very different and unique situation. Okay. They had masters, not bosses. They had owners, not employers. And when they were treated unfairly and unjustly by wicked masters, there was no union rep to call. <laughs> There, there was no fighting for your rights or going on strike. or There was no looking for a better job. They had no out. So we need to understand that and appreciate it. They were boxed in, and there was no changing it in most cases. Though, again, some could slowly through time maybe find their way out. And what Peter says he says to these people in that condition, he says, I want you to have the right attitude. You represent Christ. I want you to subject yourselves voluntarily. You are Christ's freedmen now. In him you're free, but God has placed you under this authority structure. He says, submit yourself to these masters regardless of whether they're good or not. Now, again, the question of limits comes up, as it did you know, a, few, a few weeks back. Well, are there no limits? Well, of course, the limits, 
the biblical limits always apply. That is, we are to submit ourselves to God and not to man when those two are in conflict. And see, that's where the unjust treatment was coming because God calls them to subject themselves and respect their employers. They wouldn't get whipped for that. Their masters, they, they, they like that. So why would they be treated unjustly? It's when they're doing other good, the good that God calls them to, but their masters do not. And so they would be subjected to ill treatment. But he says, you continue... Uh, to demonstrate a Christ-like attitude in that setting. Now, that was something to imagine, huh? I know some of you say, wow, uh, I'm glad that uh, I don't live in that circumstance. That there's others of you say, well, you know, you, you don't know my boss. I do feel like a slave sometimes. <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, things are better for, I think, everyone in this room and anyone listening to me. Uh, as we think, if we think about how to apply this, well, first of all, most of you can change your jobs if you're being treated unfairly. Most of you. And if your workplace becomes toxic and their treatment of you is genuinely unfair, uh, if there is an honorable way out, you can take it. You can, most of you, change your job, find a way out forward. To do it in an honorable way that demonstrates still uh, the respect that Christ calls you to, but you're not called to remain a doormat and, and never change your job. So we have different things we can do. You know, you can also seek redress uh, through employment laws to help you uh, should you desire to stay in, in your job where you're being mistreated. But I think here's where I want to reflect on the application if you can't easily change your job, now you're getting closest to these circumstances. If you're in a position where you say, it's not so easy for me, it's too late in my life, or I'm hanging on for, for, for other reasons, I'm hanging on for maybe even good, I'm hanging on to be an influence, but I'm being treated really unfairly. But I know that I have a lot of capital invested in here as a testimony of Christ. Or you might say, I need to hang on for financial reasons. I just, just, I can't. Well, then what does he call you to do? Well, he calls you to do what I, so none of you tune out, what he's called all of us to do, <laughs> which is, again, uh, be, learn to suffer well while doing good and being treated unjustly in those circumstances. And that's what he's calling you to do in the case of the job. And in order to do that, again, I just call, recall some of the things we looked at last week, but now we're applying it specifically to this situation of those you find yourself in these difficult type places or may in the near future. Uh, remember certain principles here. We're going back to last week and expanding a little bit. First of all, you need to accept and remember you are a sojourner and an alien in this world. And so what's that mean about the workplace? It means that this life, including your workplace, is never designed to be your best life. <laughs> That's not what it's all about, you see. Because you are a stranger here. You're an alien. You're passing through. You are guests here. And everything in this life is, is transient, including your job. <laughs> or your career, if it's more than a job. Your workplace, uh, 
Your workplace is not eternal. And it is part of what defines you because God's given you talents and gifts, but it is not primarily what defines you. What defines you but more than anything is Christ and being in Him, being a child of God. And you are a servant of God, he says, living as servants, even to slaves, he says that. So you're a sojourner, alien in this world. Remember that. Secondly, remember that you answer to a higher authority. <laughs> Your submission to the lower authority is for the sake of the higher authority. All authority is derived. It's, it's derivative. And God is the sovereign one. And he has placed these structures in place for society for various reasons. And so if you look at verse 18 here in our text, he says something that should stand out. Uh, he says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Now, the word respect there is actually fear. The same fear used in verse 17, fear God. Servants, be subject to your masters in all fear. I don't think he's actually talking about the fear of the masters here. Because just above, he's made it very clear that we are to honor even the empire or the, the emperor, but God is the one we fear, at least in Peter's writing here at this moment. And so I think he's reminding them that it's, it's out of the fear of God, or as he says earlier, for the sake of the Lord, subject yourselves, right? Out of fear of God, out of the greater respect for him. Why? Well, God's called you to this place. God's called you to this moment. It's no accident you're at where you're at. So, And God has the final say of what's happening in your lives. And so this may be one of those moments when, as we said last week, you need to trace the footsteps of Jesus now and submit to the higher authority who's placed you there. And so your capacity to bear up under this kind of ill treatment and submit to your earthly uh, master boss is a reflection of your respect for the higher authority, which is the Lord, the Lord your God. Um, thirdly, remember that God rewards your patient endurance when suffering unjustly. And that came out of verse 19 in its context. And we looked at Luke chapter 6 where Peter seems to be drawing heavily upon when he says, for this is a gracious thing. If you were here last week, you remember he says, this is grace. Or this is a grace. This is a, a favor. This, this is a benefit. And we drew this out of Luke chapter 6 where the same language is, is used. And, and then this, this is a blessing from God. When you're able to endure this or you will receive a blessing. In fact, in chapter 3, uh, Peter changes the language and says that directly. Verse 9, uh, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. So he's talking about the same subject. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, there's the calling again, that you may obtain a blessing. 
Now, I won't go any more into that this morning, but if, so if you weren't here last week, you may want to go back and listen to that so you can see how that all worked out. But I think that's what Peter's saying here, and he's reminding them that enduring suffering as a Christian for the sake of Christ while doing good uh, is honored by God. It, 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 you receive a blessing from God, grace from God. Uh, so that is something to keep in mind. God is not looking the other way and unawares. Uh, he rewards patient endurance when suffering unjustly. And I'm going to add to that what Paul says because Paul also addresses slaves and touches on the very same subject. The last two points I've made. God rewards your patient endurance when suffering and you are answering to a higher authority. Listen to how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 6 beginning at verse 5. He addresses the very same people in the same condition. He says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. There it is. You answer to a higher authority. As you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. Not just when he's looking your way, you know. Hi, boss. Working hard here. <laughs> Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. There's Peter. We are servants of God, right? As servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing, verse 8, and here's the point again, that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. And so keep those things in mind, he says. Peter's saying the very same things as what Paul is saying there. God is not unjust who has to overlook not only your love demonstrated for the saints, the book of Hebrews says, but also your suffering well and for the sake of his name and enduring unjust treatment. God is not so unjust as to overlook that. Fourthly, remember, remember in moments like this that Christ is your watchful shepherd. We sang, the Lord is my shepherd. And we sang that because some of us need to keep that in mind when we are in turbulent times of our lives or in dark contexts. The Lord is still shepherding. He's still guiding. He's still directing. He's still leading. The question is, are we listening? Are we pausing? Are we seeking Him? And so He is your watchful shepherd. Verse 25 in 1 Peter, what ends this segment here. For you were, before you came to Christ, you were straying like sheep. We said that you were vulnerable and rebellious and you didn't know God, but you have now returned. That is a decisive turning to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He is the good shepherd who laid down his life for you and it didn't stop there. He continues to watch over you. The episkopos, the, the one who is watching from a distance and knows and sees everything that's being done, and he will one day make things right. Remember, we turn to Romans chapter 12, where it says we should never seek vengeance because the Lord says vengeance is mine. Rather, we should overcome evil 
with good. Why? Because that sin being committed against you will end up being dealt with one of two ways. Either that sin will be covered by the cross just like yours. And this person comes to faith. And maybe in part because of the way you respond. Or that sin will be paid for under the wrath of God. We should not wish that for anyone. But hell is a real condemnation. And so if we can keep those things in mind, we seek to overcome evil with good. I know some of you have tough places to work in. And I'm not, I've not been in the workaday world for, for a long time. You know, I, I have to think back and place myself in my memories. Uh, so I speak to you as one who doesn't have uh, a tough boss right now, you know. Um, but at the same time, we're called to live like this in all circumstances. Unjust suffering in any sort of context uh, where the Lord may lead us. Fifthly, and lastly, to remember, not only you're a sojourner and an alien in this world, remember you answer to a higher authority. Remember God rewards your patient endurance and remember, Christ is your watchful shepherd, but also your ability to suffer well has an evangelistic purpose. It has an evangelistic purpose. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. See how you bear up. See how you return good for evil and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now I won't go back into what all those things might mean, but it's clear that our suffering may have an evangelistic purpose. Uh, I'd like to read from Paul again, who amplifies this in the book of Titus. In the book of Titus, in chapter 2, Again, speaking directly to slaves. So the very same sort of subject matter, okay? I mean, same recipients. <clears throat> Titus chapter 2, verse 9. Slaves, he says. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Not pilfering. Don't steal from your boss. But showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Adorn that doctrine, you see. It's one thing to say, I believe in Jesus, and then your life is a mess. <laughs> Talk about God, but do, do you actually follow Him, you see? And what, what he's saying is that our doctrine of God is like, if you would, <laughs> Uh, this is a far sort of a cry for an illustration. Imagine a Christmas tree. <laughs> there it sits, bare, bare truth, so to speak. But what do you do with it to make it sparkle? You put lights on it. And you adorn the tree. And you may talk about God, but you, you adorn the doctrine of God. You make it shine. You make it seem like re it's real and beautiful when your life reflects it and 
It reflects it in this way. You bear up under unjust treatment and actually return good for evil, you see. And now you've adorned the doctrine of God. He appears shining in their minds and their eyes. Now you may have an open door someday to talk about Christ in a way where they'll respect you. They'll listen to it. Why? Because quietly they've been watching how you bear up under the treatment of their, the same boss. And they just keep, they just keep bad-mouthing him and gossiping over her. And, but you're quiet. And you continue working hard. How does he do it? And so you adorn the doctrine of God. Your ability to suffer well has an evangelistic purpose. So, beloved, not all of us have jobs, but and some of us have retired or some of us have yet to enter the workforce. Some of us not in the workforce right now. Listen, whatever position you have in life, we all answer to someone. <laughs> whatever position you have in life or in the workplace, live according to your identity in Christ because proper submission and a respectful attitude, uh, humility, we'd say, or in the workplace, a strong work ethic, all of those flow from your being in Christ, you see. That's how it's possible. They all flow from your identity in Christ. And if you are a genuine Christian, if you are a real Christian, a born-again purpose person, then listen to this carefully, Jesus, yes, is your example, but he is much more than just an example to you, you see. He is your Savior. He is your Redeemer. He is your Transformer. He's much more than an example. If you're a Christian, you have experience grace you've been touched by grace you were chosen by the foreknowledge of God as Peter says here you were sanctified by the spirit sprinkled by the blood of Christ he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light he says you are a living stone now being built up into a spiritual household and here towards the end of what Peter's saying here he says you have you have died to sin and been made alive to righteousness. That's what God's done in you as well as what he's done for you in the forgiveness of your sins. So he's much more than just an example. Uh, we'll wear ourselves out if we think of Jesus as only our example. Uh, you see, because we'll never measure up to that, will we? You know, all man-made religion, all human religions uh, in, in human religion, the central thing is the example of the founder or founders or their main teachers. The example of that's the main thing in human religion. Be like Buddha. Be like Muhammad. Be like Confucius. And this is how someone you know, be, becomes a member of that religion. You, you take their teachings, their example, and you adopt it. You try to match it. You live according to it. But let me say this to you. If, if this is all Jesus is to you, even to some of you here today or some of you listening, if Jesus, is, is, if he's only an example to you, that you look up to, 
you are lost. I have to say you're hopeless. And why is that? It's because his life is perfect. He is sinless. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And his life, to look at his life and say, well, that's what a Christian is. I want, I just, I'm going to just do what he does. His life is an indictment of yours and mine. Because we'll never, we'll never measure up to the righteousness of God. And this is not good news. That's not the gospel. No one makes himself or herself a Christian by taking up the teachings and example of Jesus and saying, I'm going to become a Christian by doing what he did, you know, by following his teaching, by copying him. No, no. To be a Christian is to have come to an end yourself in yourself when it comes to righteousness and looking to him as your only hope, as your Savior. And to be a Christian is to have experienced uh, a, a spiritual inner event, an awakening, a renewal. It, it is to, what's he say here? He says, he called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, that wasn't you picking up a Bible and saying, I'm going to start doing what Jesus did. <laughs> That's experiencing the grace of God that invades your life, you see. To be called out is to be made a living stone, to be born again, to be made alive to righteousness. It's a, it's a new birth. That's why the Bible describes it that way. It's to be taken out of darkness. What kind? Spiritual darkness. A, a blind to who you really are and blind to the condemnation that lied ahead for you and you're brought into the light of, of the truth. Uh, of, of salvation uh, through Jesus and what he did for you. People are going to testify to that in baptism today. And so this is an inner spiritual event. It's not like joining a club. You know, uh, To be a Christian is to have God invade your life. <laughs> he calls you out of darkness and brings you into his light. Uh, he takes that step. Jesus said, you do not, he said to a group of people, religious, very religious people who heard him teach and saw his example. And he said, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, call themselves. And I know them and they follow me. How do I know if I've been called to them? When someone has been called out of darkness and into light, there is an irrefutable change, you see. It's a miracle. There is, there is a transformation that begins. And one of the indications of it is that when you come out of darkness and into light, you are humble. And you understand you weren't the wise guy you thought you were. You don't go on thinking you got it all together. You, you begin to say, I thought I had it all figured out. What an idiot I was. I, I want to learn more. I can't wait to understand more. This is glorious. This is glorious. You see, that's, you, in the light now, you see your previous blindness. And that's where repentance comes in. And uh, you become teachable. 
Seeing the miracle of grace when God reaches someone's life, they are teachable. Why? Because they don't think they're standing on their own merits. And they're willing to see the failures now because it makes the grace shine all the more. And so they want to know. They want to learn. They want to understand. So has this happened to you, beloved? Has this happened to you? Because living as servants of God in the workplace or in this culture will never make you a Christian. (laughs) Living as servants of God is the result of having been served by God, by the good shepherd who laid down his life for you and me. And I tell you today, he is still serving you and me. He is faithful to complete the work that he's began. And you may be, some of you, in some tough spots, or maybe you will be soon in some of your in some of your employments, in some very difficult places. And I understand that hearing something like this, that there are some of you that, that might think, that's great, I understand it, I believe it, but that's a tall order, man. You do not know my boss. <laughs> you don't know the pressures that I endure. But I assure you, if you lean into him, you lean into him, you will find out what, that what you sang was true. Surely goodness and surely mercy will be right beside you all the days of your life, even in these tough, in these tough circumstances. May God give us all the grace to lean into him and trust his word. Amen. Let's pray. Mm-hmm.